Hey there, welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Jeff Sengpil, CTO at Keycode Media. This is the show where we interview leaders and experts in the AV, broadcast, and post-production spaces. We're giving you the inside tips to grow your media workflows and business today. Welcome to Broadcast to Post. I'm Steve Dupay. Remote live production workflows became a must over the past few years. Now engineers and managers are determining which aspects of their production workflow to keep on site and which will remain remote. We're lucky enough to be joined today by the CTO of EVS, Alex Redfern. Alex is going to discuss the innovation at EVS and the unique ways customers are adopting new technology and new workflows. Before we get started, it's worth mentioning Keycode is a reseller partner of EVS, installing production systems across the country. Alex, thanks for joining us. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Our, our pleasure. Um, maybe to kick things off, um, it might be helpful if we just spend a minute and talk about um, some of the different methods of remote production. Um, you know, we, we hear terms bandied about like uh, Remy and, you know, at home, all that kind of stuff. Can, let, let's talk with maybe some definitions of, of how, that, how that all happens. What, what, what do we really mean by remote production? I think probably pre-pandemic, they were kind of one and the same. I mean, there, there was the term Remy, which is quite a, quite a US-centric term. Obviously, remote production happened a lot throughout Europe. Um, and uh, and then this idea of at-home, which I think Remy, remote and at-home pre-pandemic were really like really one and the same thing. And it just meant doing some form of the production remotely in some way. Um, I guess traditionally, a lot of people started with file transfers and then the pandemic probably really triggered a change in that. I, I think you're I right. Go ahead. You were going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, like the term at home. I know that there was a, a couple of US broadcasters that used it to mean doing at home productions, you know, doing them in their broadcast center, perhaps remoting from the truck or bringing files back or, or feeds back from the trucks um, in, instead of doing productions in the truck. I think after the pandemic, at home literally meant at home. You know, there was a real sort of uh, a real shift to, to operators operating directly from their homes. So I think that the one that changed quite a lot is at home. Remote production itself means a few different things, but at home is the one that we saw really change in a, in a big way. Yeah, I remember talking with lots of the sports production uh, companies, all the, the, the uh, mobile truck companies, um, et cetera, that they, they were very concerned about the cost of, of T&E for their talent going out in the field and being able to have them in the office uh, doing more of the, the production remotely was a was a big push pre-pandemic and, and now everybody wants to stay at home. What are some of the things that make it possible to do that at home? What, you know, I, I'm thinking protocols, um, the, the, the key elements that you have to have um, to, to do remote at home or just to do remote in an office. I think there's a, it, it depends on where we start with at home production. But I mean, the, the IP protocols are obviously necessary. You know, S SDI domain doesn't travel well over distance. Um, uh, you need some very long copper cables to achieve that. Um, so you need to shift to IP and normally you need to shift the compression as well. You know, you need to compress signals. There are some people moving 2110 uncompressed over distance, but it's very hard and you need a lot of bandwidth. So you move into transport protocols like NDI or SRT that are sort of compressed, um, compressed flows. Generally, those can be brought back in most cases like SRT over open internet. But you need to start thinking about um, perhaps higher bandwidth transport protocols as well. Things like, I guess, what was traditionally JPEG 2000. Now there's more of a shift towards something like JPEG XS. Um, you need to compress to, to bring back uh, feeds, uh, you know, real-time video feeds. 
right? Especially if you're going to ISO a number of different cameras, uh, you know, at, at 4K that uh, or UHD, that that becomes problematic um, trying to get those types of, of uh, data rates um, over the over the internet. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about JPEG XS and where that sits with 2110. Um, I think well. Obviously, being able to compress to something like JPEG XS in terms of a, I would say, a higher bandwidth transport um, transport stream is very useful. So you can um, compress it to sort of the 100, 200 megabit per second range, let's say somewhere between there. It often gives a good trade off between um, compression and um, the ability to move it over latent and, let's say, slightly lower bandwidth networks. Um, and there are obviously... Uh, it, bits of it fall into the 2110 protocol. I'm not entirely sure where or what, at what stage, whether it's been pro, uh, protocol, whether it's been wrapped in the protocol at the moment, because that seems to change daily. Um, but that's why we, we seem to see the, the shift towards JPEG XS within the 2110 protocol in dash 22, 23. I, I even forget the dashes sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it is a. It, it will be more and more important to be able to move those compressed streams. Um, right. But like I say, it's it's about the trade-off between compression versus bandwidth that you have available, how many flows you want to compress. Also things like timing, um, you know, you need to be able to time signals to bring them back in sync, especially if you're moving multi-phase cameras and, and so on. Exactly. Um, that kind of leads us to um, understanding some of the additional terms uh, like ingest, remote control, remote access, um, those kinds of things. Um, what what are the key components that we have to have in order to have a successful remote production environment? In my view, there's sort of two or three types of remote production. Um, the first one is like remote feed ingest. You've got a bunch of cameras or, or feeds on site, normally cameras on site that you want to bring back to a broadcast center. That kind of traditional at-home production where you just said, well, I just want to bring my feeds into my broadcast center. I have infrastructure there switches, routing, glue, conversion, replays, that all exists. I want to bring my feeds into that broadcast center and I want to use my in-house um, abilities to, to produce my in-house infrastructure. Um, that was sort of pre-pandemic that was used. You know, it was a few people were doing that um, and it was quite possible to do it. Obviously, most people at that point, you needed quite big pipes. You know, you needed the connectivity to the venue or the stadium to bring things back. And again, even pre-pandemic, we were seeing people uh, using like JPEG XS or J JPEG 2000 to move feeds between the venue and mm -hmm. the broadcast center. Um, so like EVS, for example, with the Neuron product, that's where that's been quite heavily used with Neuron compressors to bring feeds back, um, you know, plug in 15, 20 feeds into it and, and compress them and bring them back. In that instance, generally you want to compress to a, uh, you want to compress to a higher bandwidth. You know, you, you want to preserve picture quality. You don't want to throw away too many bits because when you bring it back into your broadcast center you want to be able to produce with it you want to be able to archive with it um, and uh, and you want to keep it as yeah as high quality as possible um, and generally there's sort of dedicated lines dedicated transport your connectivity is dedicated for that purpose and you might have what was traditionally maybe more of a um, sort of traditional sort of video line you might say you know you have um, videos and return video feeds um, perhaps now is shifting more towards data, but even so, it's 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 bringing back feeds. Um, it's not necessarily scalable. I think you can do it to probably sort of 10, 12, maybe 15 cameras, but that times 200 megabits a second, you suddenly start to run into the gigabits per second of bandwidth needed. And that cost adds up very, very quickly then. And also, 
certainly across Europe, maybe a bit less in the US, but across Europe, lots of venues don't have that type of connectivity available. Mm. So it's very hard to get beyond sort of maybe 5, 10, 15 cameras out of a venue at 200 megabits a second per camera, for example. Is um, that a fiber issue, a, a connectivity issue? A, what, what, what's the, the core issue there in Europe? Because there may be some issues similar to smaller venues here in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's just connectivity. So I think it's that a lot of them either don't have the connectivity maybe where it's needed in the venue. So, uh, you know, if, it, if it's not necessarily in the truck dock or in the truck bay, it can be very hard to get it. And then some venues just that's not within their infrastructure. It's not something they ever planned for. And it's something that may come about with second second right cycles. But we're still in many cases we're in the middle of right cycles. And I think that a lot of that is triggered by apps like media right cycles where as part of the new rights for the league of whatever that league is you know that will mandate that certain connectivity gets put into the stadiums to mm. facilitate the um the the egress of content you know the, the export of feeds or the, the provision of feeds. sure um, it is increasing it's and obviously you know premier league stadiums in the uk and in spain and in in, in italy have that connectivity but as new clubs maybe like come into the Premier League and maybe don't have it yet. So you still might be doing a Premier League football match that just doesn't have good enough connectivity to bring all of the cameras back. And then the other problem is a Premier League match, as an example, maybe has 20 cameras. And even then, 20 times 200, you know, you need a, you need a good sort of four gig to bring those things back. That's a, that's a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. So, you know, it's one thing having to come back to to, to kind of the home base to, to the, um, pro, the the professional production facility. Um, what about TDs that are trying to work out of their houses? Do we need to bring all those cameras back to them um, at, at those kind of data rates, or how do we accomplish in, enabling them to see what uh, what's on those cameras so they can make the the appropriate selection? I think um, that's kind of the second model of remote production. You get into this. What is more like remote control? I think it's easier sometimes to get people to step away, to, to separate the, the user interface and the, the back end, if you like, the machinery um, from, from the user and start to put distance between it. Because then you're not talking about bringing back um, high data rates. You can keep the high bandwidth, maybe like locally in the truck, you know. Um, so if you've got 30 cameras on, a, on an event, they all stay in the truck. All the routing is in the truck. All the infrastructure is there, you know, at the venue, wherever that is. Um, you keep your replay servers there. You keep your archiving facility there. You just remote your operators and you say, well, we're not going to fly people in to that to that event. We'll have them work at home. And in that case, at home can be in the broadcast center um, or it can be at home, you know, at their, at their desk, in their garage, wherever it might be. Um, and I think that's where we've seen a lot of um, a lot of change over the last couple of years really is there was some I think it was ESPN started doing that in about 2016 mainly because it saved money it saved costs yeah. of travel of cost of expenses you know of hotels and and they started specifically with replays with EVS and I think with graphics and it was like we can save four replay operators and four graphics operators a couple of producers and they worked at home as in in the broadcast center in Bristol and it was just a well look we we don't need to fly 10 people to an event it also meant that um, those operators, be it graphics or replays or those producers, actually worked on more events. So they actually got much better, much quicker. Because a traditional replay op might work two days a week if they have to sort of fly in, travel day, production set day, production day, travel day. They might get to do that twice a week. These guys could be doing two games a day 
you know, five, six days a week. So their quality of production goes up. You get a much more consistent production. So you get you get a higher uh, production value. Um, you get more consistent behavior and your top tier talent are more readily available for your your, your premier uh, productions, yeah. correct? Yeah. And those guys get to go home at the end of the day, you know, back to their families. They get to um, they, they get to sort of commute much easier. Um, and like I say, maybe they're doing two games a day where previously they do two games a week. Um, so their their skill level goes up much quicker um, and you get a much higher sort of consistency of production. Um, there's a there's a whole other part to this though that I'm, I'm kind of curious about. You know, it's one thing to 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 get uh, some some compressed images to to see what you need to to, to select um, and uh, and have remote control. I think the the, the data rates to control um, uh, production devices on site from a, a remote location are, are pretty stable at this point. Um, but there's lots of other stuff. There's all that intercom and 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 other stuff that has to go on. How do we manage all of that part? I think when you're in the broadcast center, that's that's quite straightforward. You know, normally again we come back to that dedicated line between the broadcast center and the truck. Let's say it's a let's say it's a truck. Um, and that's that's relatively straightforward. Often it's like a layer two or a layer three, you know, network, and it's pretty easy. And also there's we can talk about security in a bit, but there's there's a secure element to it because it's an extension of the of the broadcast network, which is generally a sort of a protected network. Um I guess with the with the intercom stuff, it, it's generally it's an extension, so it's pretty straightforward network extension. Where it gets interesting is for me the flip side of that. Doing it um, in the broadcast center is relatively straightforward. It's easy to bring multi viewers back because it's the dedicated line. And where previously in the previous example we talked about bringing back multiple video feeds at high high bandwidth for the cameras, now maybe you need to bring back two or three production multi viewers. And that covers everything. Now, that's all you need to bring back. So you're bringing back two or three video lines. And as you say, the data rate for control is megabits per second. We're not talking gigabits. We're talking megabits per second. Um, you know, really low bandwidth for control. Um, the flip side is when when you say, when we talk about at homes in at home, when people can't go to the broadcast center, that's where it gets interesting. Because then it's like, how do I get those things into someone's home? Then the technology has to change. The mindset has to change. The the, the setup, you know, totally changes when you do it at home. What what kind of key tools does it that that you have to have? So I'm I let's say I'm a freelancer. I want to I want to up my game and be more available. Um, but you know whether it's a lockdown or something else that's going on, um, or just an in, the inconvenience of of having to drive to uh, to the production facility. What do I need to do as a, a freelancer to be able to set myself up to do remote production at my physical residence? I think the the, the what we've seen is um, generally a good monitor or a couple of good monitors. You know, I think that's the first thing that as a freelancer, it doesn't really matter what what operational position you need to be able to see feeds. So the first thing you're going to want is quite a good television, um, and the second thing is a pretty decent internet connection. Now, it's hard to define what pretty decent means because it depends on what you're bringing in. And, you know, if you're bringing in an SRT feed at, say, 20 megabits per second into your house, that's not much different, really, to bringing in Netflix, you know, in UHD or something like that. Um, but you have to be able to balance the fact that your family might be watching Netflix and Disney Plus <laughs> whilst you're producing. And, while, you know, you need the priority of the, uh, the SRT feed not going down. Um, so I think there's there's a certain amount of having a, a reliable, stable internet connection. The other thing that we start to see more of is when we talk about those peripherals, the um, the intercoms, you know, the, the 
you need boxes. You need desk space to put uh, an intercom box or a, um, an audio monitoring box or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And often they come with just RJ45 connectors you know, that you need to plug into a network. I don't think that many, um, in my experience, in, in talking to um, operators, not many of them set themselves up in that way. They were kits provided by facilities providers or broadcasters. You know, they would send out a kit to make it as easy as possible for the um, for the freelancer to be able to operate. Um, so you would see in there a switch slash firewall. You know, it would either be one and or the other. Um, because you need to you need to connect to the system, so you need that connectivity. So you need some sort of firewall in place, and security obviously is a really hot topic. Um, you would then plug in the peripherals, and so like in our case, you plug in the remote, you plug in the um, like a mini PC that, mm. that gives you your application, your viewing application. You might also plug in a um, uh, your your re- your your like uh, Readle or RTS or whatever your your comms panel. Um, you might also plug in a router panel as well. So, you, you know, you're talking maybe four or five network ports with those associated security um, and then the monitoring to be able to, to use those. I would say so that most... Like, I was going to say, it sounds, so it sounds like what you really need to have um, is a, a highly reliable network connection um, that has appropriate uh, uh, data rates that will support the, the, the gear that's going to come in. And you've got to have a, a good workspace, uh, no distractions, no noise, so you can you can focus on that. Um, and then you touched a little bit on security. Um, that you know, I, I would think that most of the gear that would come in a fly pack would would have most of that taken care of. But um, you know, making sure that that you've got the the right kinds of ports open or not open to avoid any traffic and any risk of of uh, any interference or um, uh, surreptitious uh, uh, obtaining of the signal, if you will. Yeah, I think that's why that's why we saw a lot of people shift to something like SRT because you can deliver it relatively securely into the home over over open internet, um, and then you don't need to worry about um, uh, things like VPNs um, or firewalls. But for the control part, you're often talking about reaching, you know, a control network, a broadcast control network in a truck or in a broadcast center or wherever. You need to reach that. From your home via your home internet, so you need a VPN or you need a or you need a firewall um, in place. It, it doesn't really matter which one you choose or how you deploy it. So we saw, for example, we had seen and tested with a VPN installed on the on the mini PC with a VPN client. So you didn't need a firewall, but plug and play for most sort of at home operators, a firewall was easier because it has four ports in it. It's sent out pre configured, and you just plug this in here, plug this in here. So you're trying to make it as easy as possible. But yet you have to protect the incoming feed. I guess the nice thing is in most cases, unless you're remote editing, really the media isn't in a way that you can capture it. You'd, you'd be capturing the stream of the multi-viewer. So it's not like you could easily generate files that you could distribute. You know, Most of the time it's control. Or it's a little less risk. It's, a, it's only as risky as being on the truck. It's just about the connectivity to the truck. And making sure no one can get into you to get into that truck, let's say, or, or broadcasting. Yeah, I think these are also good points for anyone that uh, is kind of getting into this as a as a uh, production uh, technical director or um, uh, production manager. Is these are the kinds of things that you need to make sure that you've you've taken care of for your clients um, and for your your employees um, to make sure that you have an appropriate level of service. And uh, and performance to make the the remote operation successful. 
Yeah. And, and just to say how successful it can be and how easy it can be, um, it, at the Super Bowl in, I think it was 21, the Super Bowl in 2021, um, was there a Super Bowl in 21 or was it 22? I can't remember. Yeah, at one of the Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> at the Super Bowl in 2021, um, one of the operators, one of the EVS operators actually got COVID right before the Super Bowl and they were supposed to be on-prem, on the truck. They were already in the vicinity, like they were already in the hotel room. And they basically had to quarantine in their hotel room. A kit was delivered to their hotel room with the firewall, with the panel, with the remote, with the you know, monitors and so on. And they operated the Super Bowl from their hotel room. And even on sort of dodgy hotel internet, I think they took the cabled option, but as opposed to the Wi-Fi, but even on dodgy hotel internet, they were able to you know, operate replays at the Super Bowl from a hotel room. So it's definitely, it's definitely possible. And with home internet, it's obviously much more stable and much more reliable than, than hotel internet even. Um, that kind of takes us to the next level of uh, uh, the next uh, part, um, and that is remote access. Um, tell us a little bit about the tools that uh, are available to, to accomplish this, this part of remote production. It's kind of the third, the third pillar, if you like. You've got that sort of bringing the feeds back. You've got that remote control. And then there's this idea of remote access or like uh, remotely moving content. Um, and it's, I'd say it's less about real-time video. You know, the, the, the other two are quite linked to real-time video flows, whereas this is much more about file-based where you kind of, and it's much more popular, like it's been done in the US for many, many years. Um, like CBS moves something like 50,000 files a weekend from trucks back to their broadcast center. Um, and it's more around like a lot of content gets recorded on EBS servers, you know, like at events. That content is clipped by operators and then it's exported as an MXF or you know some uh, a QuickTime movie, something like that. It's exported um, and it gets pushed back to the broadcast center in real time. So that workflow includes some sort of um, file transfer accelerator, be it Spira or Signal or Filecat, something like that. Um, and it enables those MXF files. As soon as they're clipped on the EVS, they're backed up and MXF is made and they're transferred back. And generally, depending on the speed of the, the bandwidth of the, the pipe that's available, depending on the bit rate of the file, you know, those choices, it's back and, vis and, and available in the asset management system in the, um, in the broadcast center in a minute, you know, like really genuinely very quickly. You don't have to wait very long. Um, what it enables is you might be bringing back a real-time feed of like the program clean, program dirty, and an ISO, you know, ISO of camera one or all 22 mm -hmm. or something like that. But you then start to bring back alongside those things, you bring back the, the smaller subclips that generally in, in the past you would have had to have waited to be put on a disc, wait for someone to get in the car or on a plane with that disc and fly back to the broadcast center and plug the disc in. And, and obviously, when you start to look at these file transfer workflows, they're available instantly. You know, really as soon as an event happens, you wait a couple of minutes. The nice thing is, is that it travels with all the metadata. Um, it means that you can bring if you're logging in your broadcast center or you're sort of you know, adding metadata in some way in the broadcast center, everything ties up because you just kind of use IDs like game IDs or match IDs to say this content relates to this and everything just kind of syncs together. And it's it's mainly for sort of post-production and archive workflows, but the, the speed is actually quite surprising how quickly you can get stuff back from, from your, your event to your broadcast center. And it's such a widely used model now that in terms of remote production, we often overlook it because everyone does it really. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a simple one to do. Right. The ability to immediately begin editing on a growing file 
um, in, a, in a facility or in a truck has, has been there for quite a while. And now with that ability to to have the same types of things either on-prem or, or elsewhere is, is really, really helpful. Where do you see it right now Is it in terms of a mix between um, the content remaining on the cloud or being on a virtual cloud on-prem? Um, is, is there a shift one way or the other on that? It's, it's a bit of both, I would say. A lot of the time, at the moment still, a lot of post-production is still on-prem, certainly in the sort of the broadcast center environment. And you generally want to put those files, those MXF files, as close to your post-production as possible. However, obviously, in the last two, three years, we've seen an uptick in people migrating post-production to the cloud. So, like, we've got some we, – we're partners with Adobe and someone like LucidLink where actually there's really interesting workflows to not even use file transfer accelerators and to start virtualizing content across on-prem and the cloud and, and so on. So there's some really creative solutions out there now. From our point of view, we, we push a lot of files back to the broadcast center. A lot of that is to do with connectivity. Again, that connectivity is often sort of point to point from the truck to the broadcast center. So there's a lot of movement across that pipe. Um, but increasingly, we're starting to see, so we, we've developed connectors to S3 buckets so we can push things to S3 or, you know, other cloud storages sort of apply. But um, we have started moving files directly to the cloud so they can be edited on when they arrive in the cloud. And we've got now more and more post-production workflows where we see like Adobe seats just deployed in the cloud um, mm. and, and moving more and more files up there. And I think also... Where, where you have to be cautious, obviously, is with egress. Most of the time, ingress isn't costing huge amounts. It's egress from the cloud. So right. if you're archiving the cloud, it kind of makes sense to move, to get stuff up there as soon as possible, assuming you're not going to egress you know, tens and thousands of hours because that's where it's going to cost you money, basically. You mentioned uh, doing uh, uh, Adobe on, on the cloud. Um, are there other technologies, web-based technologies, microservices that are now uh, more readily available so that you can do all the processing on the cloud and not have to do that egress to, to, to do editing and, and uh, uh, colorimetry, those types of things? I think there are. So there's one of our partners is Blackbird, and they, um, they have a great sort of cloud-based edit platform. What, what we've started doing is trying to get our content closer to the cloud, so more of our content distribution. So the contribution to the cloud is sort of done. You know, We can push files to S3 buckets or storage devices in the cloud relatively straightforward. There's not really an issue with that. Um, once it's on the cloud, um, our asset management systems are microservices-based, so they, are, they, they can be cloud-native. Most people still deploy them on-prem, to be absolutely honest, um, but they are cloud-ready and cloud-native. Even the legacy products, um, we've sort of proven the lift and shift approach. We said, well, with the leg some of the legacy products, there's not much point to make them cloud-native as they'll be replaced, but lift and shift, put them in a VM, put them in the cloud, and they, they work great. You know, Many, many people have done that in this industry, so it's a, sort of a, quite a well-proven workflow. Um, but there's a that's why we that's why we talk about EVS. We talk a lot about balanced computing because for us, it, it's really the about the balance part is just deploying the right technology in the right place. And there's no right or wrong answer. Um, it's about what every customer wants. You know, where do they want to deploy? Um, to, if they want their archive system in the cloud, thus the media needs to be in the cloud. Okay, we'll we'll target media to the cloud. If they're a bit more of a conservative organization and they, you know, we don't want our media in the cloud, it's it's, it, it might get hacked or whatever. It's like, okay, then we keep it on-prem with a traditional SAM, you know, with a traditional LTO system on the back end. Um, that's, that's why we call it balanced, because we have some people who 
just have like video servers on-prem and everything else is sort of up in the cloud. We have some people that have a real mix. Um, so when we do those big sports events um, that we're quite well known for doing, um, ingest and playback is on-prem. There's a certain amount of asset management on-prem. Um, the software is running generally sort of on VMs, perhaps on COTS, and then the distribution part is very much in the cloud because obviously most of the distribution is done through the cloud. So that, that's that's the reason for calling it balanced, balanced computing, basically. Make makes sense. So there's there's that that significant security aspect, knowing where your content is and maintaining control of it. Um, what do you see the capex opex trade offs between on prem and in the cloud, um, and 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 where do you see that trend going? It, that's an interesting question. I, I think the the opex and the capex part. The broadcast industry traditionally is very capex driven, and I think that's something that we we are seeing people struggle with is like, how do we actually fund this? Um, and people getting shocks at OPEX costs of cloud, for example, you know, I think there's two parts. One is availability of instances. And then one is, okay, how much did that cost? You know, like it's so, it becomes so easy to say, oh, I'll just increase the performance. That has a knock-on effect with costs. What is interesting is certainly around sports, obviously there's all of these media rights cycles that perhaps last for eight or 10 years. How do you mitigate that? How do you factor in that someone buys something now that has to be as good today as, as it will be in 10 years' time when we don't know what 10 years' time looks like? Maybe it will be 8K, you know, maybe production will be 8K, maybe it'll be some brand new technology that no one's thought of. So there has to be elements of OPEX in there. And we are seeing a bit of a shift towards, um, even with CapEx rights cycles, let's say, to, towards an approach of breaking them down over like multi-year so that they can say, well, we'll we'll spend so much per year, we'll turn that CapEx into an OPEX because that gives us a bit more flexibility, um, you know, after three years to change our technology. Obviously, cloud is pretty much only SaaS or OPEX and our, our business models in the cloud are SaaS and OPEX as well. So we are going down that route. Um, we see quite a like token driven approach, you know, buy your tokens and spend your tokens as opposed to, because then you have like a, a finite bucket of what you mm -hmm. want to spend as opposed to just this, it's unlimited, you can keep spending, you can keep spending. So we've seen quite a trend on that. People saying, I, I'd still like to kind of cap my spending or know what I'm spending if possible. Um, so yeah, that that's quite common, that coins or tokens or whatever you want to call it. And that's something that we've done mainly in response to customers saying, I, st I know it's OPEX, but I still want to know what I've spent. Do you, do you see people um, taking on more risky or larger productions now because they can quickly spin it up on the cloud and then shut it down if it's not working? Yeah, it sort of. It's interesting because the large productions, most large productions, it's still beneficial to stay on-prem. Um, you know, if you, because of the, the 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 ability to ingress 30, 40, 50 cameras into the cloud, it's still quite difficult. It's not impossible, and there are people doing it. I think one of the PGA tours is 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 like seventy cameras or something into the cloud, um, so it, it's not it's not impossible, but there's that sort of cost benefit of uh, it depends on the longevity of the event, it depends on how many cameras and how many feeds there are, um, and that's where that second remote production model I talked about that sort of remoting operators is probably the most financially viable by saying well look we've got a lot of concentrated high bandwidth flows. Let's put them in like a, a truck or a broadcast center or a data, even a data center, you know, but let's bring it to somewhere where we can keep them. And then we only egress from there what we need. 
and we can we can sort of limit what we egress or you know we can choose if we want to bring out multi viewers we can compress them or whatever it might be um but that's where the sort of the the on-prem versus cloud is starts to get interesting cloud offers the scalability it offers the ability just to say let's let's spin it up and start another one um but actually that's quite difficult at, at big event scaling so one thing we're working on and we're going to show it at ibc um in a in a week's time is the ability to add more recorders to an on-prem system in the cloud just inputs it's just so that you can say well i've got Say you're doing motor racing, a lot of the onboard cameras are slightly lower quality. You don't want to record all of them in your on-prem system because there might be 30, 40 of them, but you could record them in the cloud and that, that cloud system is linked to on-prem. So we are starting to see that kind of burst approach to things, um, but the real focus is still around the on-prem system because you're still recording 40, 50 feeds on-prem. Um, right. So you still want the production there. That's all. That's a lot of stuff to try and ingest on the cloud and uh, <laughs> and, and and manage. So yeah. that makes that makes sense. What what is the the future for EVS? What's on your roadmap uh, related to this remote production workflow? I think there's a couple of things. I think the um, the shift from sort of I mentioned right at the start the shift from sort of video lines to more data feeds. I think the more we see you know, where people said, well, I'll, I'll bring back the multi viewer down a video path as such. Um, I think people will want to have 10 gigs of connectivity and just move everything as data. And whether it's whether it's talkback, comms, just internet for emails, um, the more that we can segment that pipe and say, I'll reserve four gig for this and you know for real-time feeds, one gig for file transfers, one gig for internet, one gig for emails and phones, that will become more and more of a thing. So like on our roadmap, um, we've we've worked to integrate our multi-viewers as pure data feeds, you know, as, as pure sort of software. Um, and that means that we're not then relying on what was traditionally like an SDI multi-viewer, which has then become 2110, which is now becoming compressed. But even so, it's still a video feed. Mm-hmm. Now it's embedded in the software. So it's like, well, if we can bring the software interface to the user, a multi-viewer will be there. There's also um, things like on the LSMV. One of the things as a response to the pandemic, I mentioned earlier that people need router panels at home to be able to route feeds. Well, because we've got the media infrastructure part, which is routing, we put the router panel inside the touchscreen. So from your remote control now, you, you don't need a router panel. You know, if, you, if you're using EVS remote and EVS routing, why would you need a, an additional panel? It's one less piece of equipment, one less power cord, it's one less network port. You know, it just, just makes things a bit easier, basically. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. It's just learnings from, you know, like, Okay, we've embedded the routing in. The next step will be audio monitoring. Well, if we've got the multi-viewer, that means we've got the signals. So then it's just a case of I want to listen to this and this and this. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of that, um, a lot of reduction of latency. You know, every time we talk, we'll always be limited by the um, you know the speed of light, let's say. Um, but anything we can do to reduce the glass to glass, the processing latency that gets added, the better. Um, so that's that's something we're working on quite heavily as much as possible, like just just reduction of latency. It's nothing specific. Um, everyone is working on it, but it's vitally sure. important. And it's really important for like an EVS operator, because if you're used to like jogging a jog wheel and, uh, you know, moving a T-bar, when you're on site, it's instant. It's 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 instant, instant replay. Right. When you're remote, if you've got a beat, even a sort of a beat or, a, you know, half a second, quarter of a second, you feel it. And you notice it when you jog the wheel back and 
and then it moves and you press play and then it plays. You really notice it. Um, so it's important. We have to set the expectations of operators, you know, because you have to say to the operator, there's a physical distance that cannot be overcome. Uh, but yeah, anything we can do to sort of reduce that latency and and, and anticipate what operators are doing and so on, that's important. Is, um, are there any other techniques that you're using? Are you applying uh, artificial intelligence to it or other things to to, to help with that? Um, we haven't, we do a lot of AI, but we haven't done AI in that regard yet. Um, it's something that I'm sure we'll look at. Um, at the moment, the AI has been around, that, that we do is around the um, interpolation of video frames and we do it for like offside lines and things like that. Um, but actually, we haven't done it on. We haven't done it operationally yet. Um, but it's certainly something that we'll be looking into as a how can we sort of anticipate what operators do and you know and, and prompt them in some way. So. I, I know you guys have done some other things, particularly in the Nordic countries, um, uh, with intersite linking. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that how that helps with latency and and um, and future operation of the facilities? Yeah, it's interesting that one. So um, we we have a network between the servers. So that's kind of again what EVS is known for for 20 odd years is this network of EVS servers. And that recently uh, moved to an IP network, well, a couple of years ago now, uh, moved to an IP-based network. And again, it just means that because it's IP-based, we can start to put distance between it and we can start to say, well, those two servers that had to be sat right next to each other can now be a few kilometers, a few hundred kilometers, a few thousand kilometers apart from each other. Um, and that was a that was a big deal. So one of the one of the projects in the Nordics was pretty much that to say, well, I think if I remember well, there's a server in Sweden, a server in Norway, and a server in Denmark, and they're you know a few hundred miles apart from each other, um, and they are over an extended network, but they're networked like they're together. So the operator in Norway can look at the record trains of the server in Denmark and vice versa, share content with it just like they're working together. Um, and we will see more of that. This is kind of like the proof of concept stage for us. Um, we're, we're working with them on, okay, is this working? Um, I think we're using things like um, uh, Aristos VXLAN to, uh, to extend the networks. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see more of that. And we're already talking to people about, you know, like, oh, if there's a football match here and the broadcast center's here, could we link the truck to the broadcast center? It's like, if you've got EVSs in the broadcast center and EVSs in the truck, that's absolutely our goal. And we'll see it at some big events this summer. Uh, no, not this summer, this winter. Um, we'll see the extension of the network from the broadcast center to the truck, or to the venue and so on and so on. So that extension is just another way of linking the broadcast center to the venue in, in, in any way, or linking multiple venues together to share content with each other. And it's not, it's kind of not really remote production, but it, it is because, you know, an operator from Denmark is, has his own machine and then connects to an operator from Norway's machine and just shares content with him like they're local. Um, so it's that kind of mix of at home and remote production in one. Sure. Well, it, it certainly feels like uh, Amazon Cloud or or any of the others, um, you know, just on a, on a, on a, a different application at a different scale. Um, and and once that that starts to roll, then there's all kinds of other things that I think that can can tie into it. So I think that you're you're on to something there. I think that's. Uh, I think, yeah, we think so. We we. We're seeing, like I say, we're seeing more and more of it. And and when broadcast centers have EVS servers in them for their live production and trucks have it, have them in them for their live production, and they're producing the same content at the same time, one is doing the studio show and one is doing the live match. It's like, well, it makes sense to link them in the most optimal way possible. Right. Um, so when we when we start to do that, which we've started to do, it's it's really interesting. 
So we're, we're seeing more and more uh, cloud native deployments. Um, tell me where that's really falling. Is it, is it, is it all the way to the, the tier one uh, level performances? Um, I know there's lots of small scale stuff, but where, where does that sit right now? And, and what do you see the future being? I think from our point of view, we'll see um, more and more lower tier productions migrate to the cloud. You know, uh, the use of on-prem hardware for those lower tier productions is uh, is decreasing, and cloud software, you know, cloud-based software is uh, is increasing. And we see every day, even with IBC coming up, we see every day more and more people um, uh, talking about releasing cloud-native applications for all sorts of production, whether it's asset management or replays or switching or whatever. Um, so I, I think we'll see more and more of the uh, like volumetric production or volume-based productions where people have a mandate to produce four, five, six, seven, eight thousand hours of content a year. They need simple systems that spin up easily that move into the cloud. Um, you know, they want the, often in that case there's two or three cameras. You know, sometimes even just one camera with graphics. Um, when you're talking about Low, low league European handball, it's like two cameras or netball or something like that. It's really not pretty simple. High production. Yeah, it's basic. Um, so you want to be able to spin that up quickly. You want an operator to be able to do it from their desk, from their desk, maybe even in a browser at home, you know, right, really straightforward. And that's, that's something that EVS is looking at. It's quite a transition away from where we're traditionally tier one events. And like I said before, tier one events aren't necessarily changing. You still see big trucks. I'm sure there will be fewer of them in the future, but we still see big trucks going to big events. Um, and that part isn't changing. What is changing is the, the the volume of productions at lower level and the expectation of good quality production at 8,000 hours a year or something is, is crazy. You know, you need relatively untrained people to be able to sit down and go, okay, I can switch a basketball game or, a, you know, a, a netball game or a handball game. I can do that in without really any training. Um, right. That's something that we're looking at quite heavily. And those things, because they need to spin up and spin down so efficiently, they need to be cloud native. They need to be based on, you know, sort of microservices or at least container based so that they spin up and spin down very, very, very easily. Sure. It, it kind of feels to me like the, 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 the tier one type of, of uh, events and, and venues um, will, will kind of stay on that um, remote production capabilities with the cloud. They'll, they'll leverage that to their advantage, but they'll still do a lot of on-prem stuff because they need the reliability. They, they need the backup. There's, there's so much more involved that the cloud just, it, 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 I don't think it'll ever really be able to solve that until we have remote control football players. Um, and uh, okay. I don't see that anytime in the future. I think there's two parts to that. One is that Amazon, um, uh, you know, like won the rights to the NFL, for example, but that's being produced by, if I remember, like an NBC production team on a Game Freak truck. So that's still, you know, even though Amazon won the rights to it, it's all 4K. There's 30, 30 something cameras in 4K. Again, right. you come back to this. How do we ingress that into the cloud? Even Amazon went. We'll do it the traditional way for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's quite interesting because that's a really sort of tier one event backed by a cloud provider that won the rights to it. And we see Apple going after the rights of the MLS, I think, similar. I think mo you know, most of the production will be sort of on-prem based or quite traditional based, let's say. It's not revolutionary. Um, so that that's quite interesting. Thinking about the uh, the remote control footballers, though, eSports, ironically with eSports, still doing traditional broadcast. I was, I was in a, a broadcast event in Cologne the other week where even that, was very traditional. There's a 
switcher, there's replay ops, there's routing, there's glue. So, and that's that's a tier one event. It was on-prem tier one right. esports event with 20,000 people in an arena uh, watching amazing atmosphere. I've never been to one before, but it was a very traditional TV production. And I was a bit like, oh, I thought that with esports, things would change. Not necessarily. I think it's it's still that needing to be in the environment, feel the energy of the crowd, kind of get the, a sense of that flow. And that's why it's hard to re- replace that part remotely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, cool. Well, this has been fascinating. I, I really appreciate your time. And and um, I think we learned a lot here and and uh, uh, look forward to more cool stuff coming from EVS. Thank you, Alex. That's great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for watching Broadcast to Post. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive future episodes. Follow Keycode Media on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to receive news on additional AV, broadcast, and post-production technology content. See you next time, folks.